0: Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, looking at the politics of technology from around the world. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week we celebrate the anniversary of Facebook's takedown of Australian news sites with a deep dive discussion on the news media bargaining code with our guest Professor Terry Flew. But first... Our wrap of the latest news with Digital Rights Watch chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia managing director Dan Stinton. We wanted to start a bit of a scissors, rock, paper on who leads it off, but I reckon today, Lizzie, you kick us off. Labor um, announced a policy on tech um, over the last fortnight. Now the Liberals have had a lot of running on tech policy and and sort of the regulation of big tech. So, what was Labor's counterpoint? Um, it's it, the headline called it a digital license for kids, and I, I can't help thinking about drivers' licenses or gun licenses, or, but but what is a digital license, and is it a good policy, or is it just a an announceable?
1: It's called an eSmart Digital License Plus, which I think is a bit of a pastiche of various um, almost web. terminology there, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, this copped up quite a bit of mocking on social media. It felt a little bit like it was proposed by Principal Skinner or similar, Um, you know, talking about a pen license. Did either of you guys ever have a pen license? no oh really I definitely got my pen license but I think to be honest if anyone saw my handwriting these days I'd be So what was it. a pen
0: license once you were legible you because yeah. I yeah I ended up learning shorthand and my writing went yeah.
1: okay I take it back maybe you didn't get your pen license for a reason but in general the idea was <laughs> that you would transition from a gray lead to a pen because you'd mastered kind of cursive text but yeah my my handwriting these days is appalling but the whole idea I think I got it when I was in grade four the idea was that you worked for it and then you got it and it was a sign that you were moving up in the world and so Labor has put out this press release that kind of framed it in those terms. What they're actually talking about is essentially making a digital media literacy program that's available in some schools in Australia now with the Alana and Madeline Foundation, which has got a focus on anti-bullying, particularly in cyberspace. Um, They're proposing to make that universal if they win the election. So available in all schools, which to my mind seems pretty sensible. Um, I'm certainly not opposed to Giving children access to education about digital media literacy, I think it's an important thing to do. Um, I think it's a bit of a daggy name, and that's fine, but uh, you know, whatever. It's it's not just an announceable, although I wish they'd get better at the announceable bit. Um, the thing I wanted to raise, I suppose, in the context of this discussion is the conversation that we're having about online safety has definitely been dominated by the LNP, Scott Morrison government. Um, you know, they've passed a whole bunch of legislation, they've got legislation proposed as well, like the Identify and Disrupt Act. Uh, last year, which was focused on Surveillance agencies talked about the need to protect children from online predators. Uh, the Online Safety Act obviously included a huge range of powers for the eSafety Commissioner, and also we've got a couple of bills um, currently before Parliament. Um, you know, there's been a, an inquiry into social media and the safety on of people who use social media. And I feel like this discussion has been really dominated by kind of moralism and policing as the the answer to problems of online safety. So in that way, I really wanted to encourage uh, a potential Labor government to look to literacy and education and empowerment as an alternative to that narrative around online safety. And I guess the other point I'd make, and I've got a piece I wrote about this, which I'll link to in the chat, is, if it hasn't already been, um, was just also that I think it's fine to talk about literacy and education, uh, particularly for media with children, but uh, we've got to make it more expansive than that because technology touches all different aspects of our lives. And the government's commitment has to be more expansive than that, including uh, implementing some of the recommendations in the privacy review discussion paper, for example, uh, so that the Labor government, if it gets elected, is not just going to be talking about and educating kids about their um, rights online or how to engage on online safely, but are actually contributing to legislative um, action to make those spaces safer and more accountable. And management of data is a really obvious example. If we can limit how much uh, companies surveil, particularly young people, but children as well, I think that does contribute to online safety. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what we were getting at when we were writing about this topic I want to be encouraging, and I think they should do more, even if it's got a slightly daggy name.
0: Yeah, I must say that when I saw it, I reached out to Tim Watts, who was our guest a fortnight ago with a bit of a WTF. Um, <laughs> and he, and, and what, he came back and said, this is actually one of the recommendations of the ACCC digital platform's inquiry and I've been whinging that they've only moved forward on the news media bargaining code and not the rest of the recommendations Mm. if you go back and look at what Sims was saying about digital literacy it was more expansive than just teaching kids like stranger danger it's actually that that if you are going to have people growing up in these ecosystems that they're actually aware of the way they operate. So not so much just who to say no to, but a bit of a roadmap and how they work. And obviously you're not going to make a nine-year-old read Susanna Zuboff, but you've got to find a way of making them aware that they are not. they, they are also a subject of a particular business model that will exploit them if they don't know what they're doing.
1: Totally. That's why I think uh, technology literacy can't just also be about media and consuming media. It needs to be how it fits into other ecosystems of our lives, including basics of how tech works like how software and hardware interact with each other like it's very difficult to understand some of the power dynamics of the public debates we have about the regulation of technology without a basic understanding of that and this is the time to be teaching mm-hmm. them I'm not from the school that all kids need to learn to code or anything like that but I think we shouldn't just be combining it to, um, to media and uh, we probably need to think a bit more carefully about that and there's also like ways in which it can be made fun like it, it doesn't have to be totally boring and dull. You know, there's lots of people working in the space on like the gamification of digital of technology literacy and the like, and I think it's worth drawing on them. I mean, I think the from all I haven't gone mm. through the digital literacy program from Alana and Madeline Foundation. From all reports, it seems like a very sensible one, and um, they're doing the right thing, and so I want to encourage them on that. But you know, this is the time to be bold, I reckon, and yeah. start thinking about how we can do it really well.
0: Dan, you've, sh- got, you've got kids. Oh. Are they going to get a license? I'll bring you in a sec, but just from no. Dan first. Yeah. Uh, oh Look, I think I'm just going to be in unison
2: with with both of you on this. I mean, I think it's actually a really good thing. Um, I, I agree it needs to be more expansive. Um, I think Travis uh, in the chat just mentioned that we also need to be thinking about the Internet of Things and all the surveillance that comes with that. And I think uh, giving kids uh, some understanding of these things early is is absolutely fundamental. I mean, I can't think of how many times that I've had a conversation with my friends who are maybe just Generation X, if not Generation Y. Pete, I know you're a little bit older than me and Lizzie. But um, uh, the uh, but the point, made is, you know, thank, thank Christ that social media wasn't around when we were young and stupid in our teens and early 20s. And there hasn't really been an education done in any formal way. You're kind of relying on parents to um, educate their kids. And you're often relying on parents to educate them who also come from a position of, of ignorance. So I agree. I think that... Um, Social media is one part of this. Privacy is another really important part of this. And just an understanding, to your point, Lizzie, just an understanding of the increasingly dominant role that's, that um, coding and software is playing in our society, I think would give everyone a really good basis to be able to, to determine how they operate in this new digital world. So I think this is a great initiative. Um, I, I was also going to make the point, this was one of uh, Rod Sims' recommendations. Let's hope that, um, that Labor keeps on, uh, and the Coalition for that matter, keeps on picking up uh, all of these recommendations and, and acting on them.
0: Yeah, Terry, shoot. Welcome.
3: Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you, Peter, and thank, thanks everyone. Your your comments there about not making a uh, six-year-old read Shosanna Zuboff reminded me that I I took her magnum opus to the US with me when I was on leave in 2019 when I were able to travel, and every night I'd say, well, I'm going to read some of um, Zub- the, the big book of Zaboth before going to bed, and every just about every night I ended up um, closing it. And Three
1: pages. Going it. Just going straight to bed, is that what that's, you're saying?
3: That's right, that's right, so, so get your point there. A couple of things on this I thought were perhaps worth mentioning over and above, whether it's a, a good or a bad thing. One is uh, that it does connect to debates that are happening in other parts of the world, for sure, and Anyone who's been following the UK debates would know that this online safety issue has been going back and forth in the UK for a number, number of years. And one of, the, one of the issues that arises with this and a lot of other areas is the question of if there is to be some form of regulation, who should do it? And there's authors such as Philip Schlesinger at the University of Glasgow and others have been talking about this idea of neo-regulation that because a lot of the issues that arise in this space don't sit neatly within any single uh, department or agency, there's a lot of moving around and indeed a lot of competition among governmental agencies around who should be be responsible. I'll put a link in the chat to that. But I think about that in Australia with the rise of the Office of the E-Safety Commissioner, and I think Julie Inman Grant is a, very interesting example of a policy entrepreneur in this in this space who has managed to very effectively get the ear of the minister and i think an interesting point about that and i have heard paul fletcher actually say this is that one of the reasons the office of the e safety commissioner has been promoted was the sense that the acma the communications and media authority wasn't doing anything and i think you know that we possibly at the end of an, a three-decade era of what, what came to be known as responsive regulation or sometimes self-regulation or whatever, where the government agencies basically set up a framework for the industries to regulate themselves. Uh, you know, we've got ample evidence of this uh, failing in other other sectors, mm-hmm. most notably finance. And in, in this space, it seems... Uh, Policy entrepreneurs, if you like, such as the eSafety Commissioner, have acquired quite a quite a degree of uh, of power and influence with regards to policy. I think Rod Sims, as chair of the ACCC, is another policy entrepreneur in this space that, you know, we'll talk about the ACCC later. But, you know, I always thought of it as being about, you know, determining whether you were being ripped off for parking at the airport. You know, those, those kinds of, you know, very traditional competition policy issues, but uh you know Sims with the digital platforms inquiry took took this into some quite different spaces, including yeah,
0: yeah we will go a bit more deep into our friends at the a in the second part of this um discussion, but um just moving through the um the week or the fortnight that was dan you've um nominated an initiative around privacy that Google's released over the last couple of weeks, which um is place putting in place levels of privacy that might constrain other companies doing what they do best? Yeah,
2: so this is um, this is the privacy sandbox on Android is the is the title that Google mm. has given this, and this is effectively Google's version of of Apple's app transparency uh, or app tracking transparency ATT that they released as part of iOS fourteen point five, and effectively. What um, what ATT did and what I, I think Google is proposing to do, it's a little bit sketchy at this stage because it's still a couple of years away, but what they're proposing to do, I think, is... Um, limiting uh, third-party use, so uh, app for, uh, publishers, uh, Facebook, uh, whoever, from being able to access the device ID and therefore track uh, consumers across all of the apps that they use on uh, Android devices and uh, similar to what's happened with Apple. Um, now, a couple of points on this. I mean, look, that is that is a welcome step. I mean, it's kind of following the same principles that we're seeing with the end of cookies uh, in the browser and not being able to follow people across the internet that way, so it's welcome. But just a couple of points, which I think often gets lost a little bit in this debate, is Apple was in the position to be able to do this and position it very much as being about protecting consumer privacy because at the time that they announced this, they didn't really have an advertising business. They did have some, by the way. I'll come back to that. But, uh, you know, I I think we can probably think it is relatively genuine that Apple were doing this to protect consumer privacy. The difference is that Google is doing this at a time uh, when they are the largest advertising business in the world. And the impact of this, while it will be good for consumers in one sense, it's terribly bad for competition because what it basically means is that third parties, such as Facebook, but not just Facebook, publishers such as The Guardian and everyone else, uh, will no longer be able to um, track users as effectively as they previously could for the purposes of creating segments, for the purposes of target advertising. But Google, as the owner of the operating system, can still collect all of that data on the basis that it's first party and they own it. And that will give them a huge advantage in their targeted advertising capabilities, similar to what we're going to see when cookies go away from Chrome. And so I think just to give a sense of what the risk is for this, if you look at what's happened to Apple, so Apple, the only advertising business that Apple runs is their uh, effectively Apple search ads, which are the the sponsored ads that you see in the app store around um, downloading apps in the six months or so that it's been since att was introduced that business has tripled in its uh, revenue uh, according to many media reports now if something similar was to happen to google then i mean help the rest of us because we're gonna we're gonna struggle even more than we do in competing against the juggernaut like that so this is why i'll finish my monologue now this is why while this is a welcome step, it must come with the government stepping in and introducing purpose limitations on what you can do with the collection and use of consumer data. Because if we don't have some guardrails on companies like Google, but also Apple uh, and others from being able to collect data from one use and use it for something else, namely target advertising, then it's going to create the competition issues we see now so much worse.
0: So purpose limitations is your hobby horse, Dan. Um, do you want to just explain it one more level of detail and where... That discussion is up to at the moment.
2: Yeah, so um, just to explain what I mean by purpose limitations, it's not certainly not my concept. It's something which was introduced actually as part of GDPR, uh, not really enforced well in my view yet. Um, but uh, but watch this space. And effectively, what that means is, to give an example, uh, someone like Google, for example, can't take the data that they extract from your use of Google Maps and use that for the purposes of selling targeted advertising in a completely different environment. I don't think any consumer would think that that was a reasonable use of consumer data and it wouldn't be what they would expect to have happen. So you put purpose limitations in place that say whatever data you use uh, for the purposes of running Google Maps must be used for the purposes of improving Google Maps and nothing else. And if you do that, it substantially uh, reduces the surveillance and, and the capability of the, of the advertising businesses that Google has, has built. So um, hopefully that explains it.
0: Yeah. Lizzie, unity ticket there with Dan um, on purpose limitations.
1: Yeah, yeah, Look, I, I, I certainly wouldn't object to being introduced as uh, part of the review of the Privacy Act. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I do, um, it's sometimes hard to feel a bit sorry about for the, the losers in a the fallout of a situation like this, who are sad about losing access to um, rich behavioural data, I suppose. And that's, that's the only thing I'd say about that, but that's perhaps a bit cynical and mean. I mean, one of the things that it does strike me is that probably, Dan, this would see a company like The Guardian shift away from behavioral advertising towards native advertising. I'm not sure if that's something that you guys yeah. talk about a lot, but it always struck me as a bit odd that media companies um, were interested, I mean, this preempting the, this another discussion, but interesting in getting into bed with social media companies when, in fact, the data that they have about their users could be used to sell advertising in the way that they used to, perhaps when they were actually hard copy papers. Um, and there's, there's a lot to be said, I think, for preferring native advertising if you have to tolerate advertising over provided that it's disclosed and all that kind of stuff as opposed mm. to say using behavioral information um so i mean that's that's the other thing to keep in mind i would just put in that I'm, I'm less sympathetic to apple than perhaps you are dan because apple's got the most locked up um environment for people to be able to use their products it's like a subscription service from hell you know once you've got an Apple product it's really hard to move out of that domain and they make it that way for a reason and they you know they obviously have other ways in which they crack down on um, potential competition you know Epic and Apple are in a massive dispute now in Australia about this issue you know charging through the app store so they've got their own streams of revenue that are protected by that so I'm perhaps a little more cynical about their privacy play there but I Uh, actually
2: I'm I'm not sure if you are more cynical I I just haven't spoken about that I am I am 100% with you on that as someone that has to give away 30% of our revenue Apple for anyone that subscribes to the Guardian uh, in iOS. I mean, oh, that is a blatant rent seeking. It is, it is, uh, it needs to be reduced. It's and the reason it's publicly. the
1: most valuable company in the world. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. um, I, I think we can, I think when, when large tech companies that have profited from a data extractive, data extractive business models now talk about privacy, we should always hold hold them in suspicion (laughs) um but yeah I do think it is interesting that we are shifting and, and actually feels like we're in a new phase of these companies growth where they're less about you know giving away free services to acquire stuff and now concentrating their pipelines of data flows and and leveraging that as their value add to people seeking to buy advertising space so it is a different phase in some of these tech platforms growth and and it's interesting to observe yeah
0: I might just bowl up my one, which was really about the metaverse, because you know it's it's my it's it's my favourite crazy idea. Um, Lizzie's
2: obviously. too; she loves it.
0: Um, <laughs> and and people should know that there has been an edict from Mark Zuckerberg that his workers are now metamates. Uh. Um, <laughs> they had to do it, but. The story that caught my eye it originally came from my second favorite tech podcast which is what next TBD which is a fantastic podcast that Slate puts out which was around safety in the metaverse um, which was really there's two there's been a spate of um, complaints of sexual harassment in the in the metaverse um, virtual groping um, Kids running rampant um, from room to room, even though there's meant to be age limitations on access. Obviously, they've just got their parents' Oculus, and it it has got me thinking: what what would be what are going to be the rules of moderation in a place which is, you know, potentially Westworld, where you can just go in and be your worst self with very little um, consequence. And you know, the way I've always thought of how we should think of platform activity is you have norms, you have rules, and then you have the external laws of the land. But when you're setting up a new environment where there are no norms, then how does that interplay with the rules and the law of the land? Like it appears that people are being sexually assaulted. So laws are being committed already in what's still basically a beta product. The Centre for Countering Digital Hate ran a, a, a study and they discovered a hundred potential violations of MetaZone policies for virtual reality in the space of 11 hours of recording people's conduct in the app. So our, our guest two weeks ago, Tim Watts, had said that he'd actually purchased Oculus to see what's going on. I'm wondering if we need to all get ourselves an Oculus and go in there and do a burning platforms from inside, Lizzie, because I I'm still trying to get my head around how you actually create an environment with rules and norms from the ground up and I don't know if that's even a question but I just said hey this is getting weirder by the week.
1: Yeah this is so funny because I understand your concentric circles there but I would also put design decisions as being I guess a a way in which norms might be able to be developed um, or the absence of any consideration of this from a design perspective suggests that there are a set of norms there that just perhaps haven't been critiqued or or question that.
0: So you design that you're going to have a tactile experience, and then you'll have no no places where you cannot have a tactile experience,
1: or <laughs> no no places. I like this. Yeah, you should no be zone. working for the e safety commissioner. Well, <laughs> it's interesting because I, when you raised this story, um, and we were talking about it, I it did come to mind to me a number of different stories of people who've been involved in video gaming where they've been groped or sexually assaulted there's a um, interesting medium post from someone who talks about uh trying out a, a vr headset in 2016 i think and someone comes up to her and starts groping her and she said it felt really violating which i can understand but also like her her brother and her husband were watching at the time this experience like the whole thing is just awful um they weren't not doing anything about it but they're observing her play the game in the headset and you know you feel humiliated I can imagine it's just awful and she I thought that was a really interesting observation because it hadn't occurred to me that this kind of thing would happen perhaps naively so it is a problem that's been occurring in multiplayer video games for quite some time and there are people who are studying this and are trying to come up with For example, design solutions to this problem, how you cultivate norms whereby this kind of behavior is called out, where people get put into timeouts, where you can, what one set of developers came up with is what's called a power gesture. It's like having a superpower where you can create a personal bubble around yourself so that people can't touch you. So if you're in one of these haptic vests where you can experience sensations when other um, avatars touch you and the like. You should be able to turn that off pretty quickly and easily, I would have thought, as a first port of call. And you should be able to report really easily when someone's being gross. You should you should have um, ways in which you foster a culture of of reporting and calling out this kind of behaviour, making it very easy for other people and bystanders to do it too. And this is the kind of research that's already been happening in video games. And that's why I think, you know, Zuckerberg can't really let this lie. It's going to be a massive liability for him because I would not go on there, I have to tell you in this kind of environment. I do right not want to a be... class
0: action lawyer around? We could get in there early. Preemptive? <laughs> okay. Is there a principle here?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, that's one. That's I guess I think it like a lawyer because that's what I am. But, you know, if you've got a bunch of research and a bunch of possible design tools available to you and you choose not to implement them and you expose your users to that risk of harm that's unacceptable and people go on to experience that harm you do have to wonder if you've got a duty of care to those people by allowing them into a space that you regulate, that you design, and then not doing the things mm. you need to do to keep them safe. There's a real question around whether they owe a duty of care to guard against this kind of thing. And you know, as a lawyer, a hammer that sees everything as a nail, I would say they do. And uh, a failure to do so is not just a legal risk. It's also, I just think a risk to the product's success. Like women see this and don't want to go in there. You know, uh, that's my, my opinion. I, I wouldn't really want to go in there. So Pina and Dan, if you want to go in there and hang out with a bunch of bros who love, um, you know, fighting each other. Doing bro things, I don't know. Then be my guest, but I think I'd, I'd rather be somewhere yeah, else. Or maybe the there'll be women-only spaces, or
0: the
2: ladies' lounge. Out
1: yeah,
2: like- <laughs> <laughs> I love it how quickly that you lump us in with the tech pros at any opportunity. It doesn't say it doesn't to me at all. It's funny though how you, you see everything in the world through uh, through a legal lens, and, and as a commercial sort of business business guy, I see everything through a, a competition lens. You know what I would like to see? Mm. I, I would like to see uh, companies other than Meta, uh, Facebook spending the quantum uh, of money that they are so that we have more than just one company effectively likely to dominate this new world. Because at the moment they spent $10 billion on this last year. Um, now I know that obviously Microsoft, Apple, Google are all investing in this space, but not to the same level in terms of controlling the experiences that, that Facebook is or Meta is. And so I, I think one of the solutions to this is hopefully that we have more people investing in this space rather than just one company. Doesn't that create so-
0: the virtual reality, Dan? Isn't Jack, just accepting that this is the next frontier like why does this have to be the next frontier
2: no no, but my point is my point is is that I don't think it's inevitable that it is the next frontier by the way but my point is is that if there was competition in this space uh, where privacy was something that people competed on in a way that we haven't seen with social media as sort of a a parallel then -hmm. hopefully we would see things like some of the things such as what uh, Lizzie is describing being developed from the start and hopefully that would create safer spaces which these companies could compete on and so you might have companies which would go well I've created our version of the metaverse whatever the hell you want to call it which is safe for women and women might be more inclined to go there but to answer your question Peter, I'm, I'm not convinced that pe- people want to spend lots of time in this space yet I, I'm I, you know I know that there's lots of talk about this being the next computing platform and it, it taking over from where the iPhone left off I just i just I can't see all of us wanting to spend wear these things on our face uh, for any more than um, well, I don't know, a minute a day, if that. So uh, I'm, I'm unconvinced. Have
0: you got a virtual opinion on this one, Terry?
2: Oh, I
3: think not so much. I, I agree with Dan about the not wanting to wear these things on your face, but I think I think we are going to see um, increasingly mixed realities in the workplace. I, I think you know, as someone who works in a university where i can tell you there is now incredible confusion about whether people are doing classes face to face or online that covid has just blown up something that was always potentially there that the distinction between you know in class and online and so on is absolutely changing very quickly and i think this is increasingly people's work environments as well and i can see innovations in the mixed reality uh, space playing quite an important role here that I don't know that you know a decade from now we will be doing events such as this in the format in which in which we currently we I like to think on. this
0: is our little mini metaverse in that I, I do think there is a sense that the this technology we are meeting together in a virtual space in a way that's different to just sharing a post on Facebook or Mm -hmm. watching a pre-broadcast or even listening to a podcast that we're actually in this space at the one time people are actively contributing so it's just whether you need to go the next level down of um a more intimate experience where we can feel Mm -hmm. and touch each other which is just like
1: i wouldn't mind i wouldn't mind checking out what that haircut looks like from the back i have to say Peter,
0: (laughs) (laughs) when i get to man but i'll let you know
1: Breaking news now Facebook has announced it will ban users in Australia from viewing or sharing. So began
2: the Great Purge as page after page of domestic and international news was blocked.
1: Not all content is created equal, so it is important that uh, journalism is properly recompensed.
3: Facebook and Google will be forced to pay for original content under a mandatory code. It soon became apparent that a voluntary code wouldn't
1: cut. That there is a clear market power imbalance between on the one hand Google and Facebook which are near monopolies or very close to monopolies on the one hand and the media companies on the other.
0: Facebook's decision to block people from sharing news in Australia is being
1: criticised by lawmakers around the world, and it sets the stage for a much bigger showdown between the social media giant and governments and news organisations.
0: It is a, a year since Facebook hit the switch in the middle of the negotiations over the news media bargaining code and probably hit it a little bit harder than they actually intended so that we woke up a year ago and all news sites had their pages on Facebook blocked, but also a large number of civil society sites, um, the domestic violence hotline, um, weather bureau, and it was a, it was a big deal. Like it was the largest platform in the world, um, blocking access of effectively Australian news sites and civil society from their platform. And there were negotiations. It was all over the news media bargaining code, which you know in some iteration landed um, in a way that um, has created a whole bunch of deals in the media, which we're not quite sure what the substance is because they're all commercial in confidence, but you look at a place like the Guardian, they're holding a lot more journalists. So I guess the discussion for the second half of this session is not so much what Facebook did, but whether the bargaining code is a framework that has succeeded, Um, whether it's the right way of approaching the contradictions between traditional media and social media so I want to bring Terry in very soon but I just I know we've all got different views on this and I just want to get each of you to reflect whether a your views have changed over the last 12 months and, and and where you have landed with this particular piece of social policy so I'll start with you Dan because you've been closer to it and I know there's some things you can say and some things you can't say. But what's your take? Is it what you thought it would deliver and um how has it affected your 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 business?
2: Sure. Um look, this is a there's so much you can say here. I'll try and keep this brief. Um Look, I am a massive fan of the News Media Bargaining Code. Uh, I have been a massive fan of it for a long time. Uh, obviously, there's differing views on this, um, and we'll no doubt get into those. But uh, just a couple of points I, I would say as to why I'm a fan of it. I concede the point, which I think you've made before, Lizzie, that it is not, if you were starting from scratch and trying to regulate the platforms, you wouldn't necessarily go down the News Media Bargaining Code route. they there's some kind of perhaps digital tax which is then redistributed to uh, news publishers would make sense in a lot of ways. The problem is that probably that probably runs foul of free trade agreements. And I'm not sure that it's actually going to be something which we could actually get up. So I regard the news media bargaining code as a a pragmatic solution to dealing with the dominance of Google and Facebook on the digital advertising market. Um, And the other point I would make is there are there are it's important to look at this in the context of what has it done for public interest journalism. And from the Guardian's point of view, at least, look, we have massively increased the size of our newsroom uh, as a result of these agreements. Um, to be clear, we were growing anyway and going well, but what it has done is it's brought forward the investment that we probably would have made over the next sort of two or three years into a year and, and really accelerated our growth. And that's made us more able to compete with Nine and News Corp and others in a way that we couldn't previously because uh, we were we were relatively small and still are, but, but, but less so now. So look, I remain uh, a big fan of it. I think we've also seen uh, News Corp and Nine um, hiring more journalists and not announcing any redundancies. So I think To your point, Peter, we don't know the full extent of the success of this, but I think we can assume that it has at least um, strengthened the companies which employ most of the journalists. Um, The downside, obviously, is that Google and Facebook have not been designated under the legislation, and therefore, they still have the ability to be able to pick winners with regards to who they do deals with and... What has been disappointing is that Facebook in particular, not so much Google, because they've done a lot of smaller deals, but Facebook in particular has not done as many deals with smaller publishers as uh, I would have liked to have seen. Um, I still think, though, on balance, when you look at it, this has employed uh, and no doubt saved hundreds of journalists' jobs in Australia, and that is good for Australian democracy. So I remain a a very big fan of the code and, and what it's achieved.
0: What about you, Lizzie? Like, I know where your starting point was. Have you, has your view changed in any way or are you pretty much where you were 12 months ago?
1: Uh, no, I'm, I, I think I'm pretty much for not <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is pretty disappointing, but not surprising that uh, there hasn't been a deal done with the conversation or SBS. It's not surprising to me that none of the moves have been made to designate any of these platforms, notwithstanding that. I think it is good that the ABC is going to invest the revenue that they're obtaining from this into regional journalism because it's sorely needed. Um, but I think it is pretty depressing that we've seen no new funding of the ABC. Just to relax on the freeze on uh, the indexation of funding and I am a bit concerned that this maybe justifies perhaps refusing to up that funding I mean more generally I'm a bit alarmed that it's uh, being potentially discussed in lots of other parts of the world exactly as I thought it might be um, rather than perhaps looking to more superior alternatives to policy making in this space and I am overwhelmingly Worried about the power of Murdoch media in Australia, uh, just because we have one of the most concentrated media landscapes in the world, and uh, I'm pretty worried. We're looking at the foundations being laid for you know Fox News, the vacation of Australia, uh, particularly as Sky News uses these resources to to reach out into regional spaces, to reach out into other niche areas. I think it's really telling that. At various points in which um, YouTube videos from Sky News were being taken down for being disinformation or misinformation uh, based on climate change denialism, Uh, they were also launching a journalism, you know, a journalism initiative uh, off the back of this code with in partnership with various other organisations. So I do think there's a problem whereby some of the worst aspects of the media are going to be boosted, and uh, the kind of content we see is not quality content, but uh, social media optimised content. But yeah, none of Mm. that's new.
0: I guess. I've just put up a piece on the Guardian. I think I have I have moved in one regard in that I I don't think such an important piece of reform that was designed to actually have a process where we could really come to an accommodation of the value of public interest journalism has ended up occurring behind closed doors. And mm. um, the fact that the deal for Facebook turning back on after they'd Drop was to not be designated and go off and do deals on their own terms has actually undermined the integrity of what I thought at the time was a really good part of a broader package of reforms based on the ACCC report. And there's just two things I want to point to. Um, the first is that under the law, the competition, ACMA, the, the, the media, has the right to say whether or not an organisation is carrying out public interest journalism. And if there was a designated platform, they would have to reach an accommodation. There's about 20 organisations that have passed through the ACMA hoop that Facebook and Google are saying, talk to the hand to, and there's no mechanism unless the government wants to go down another showdown on designation. So for smaller media companies, there is this massive problem. And the second one, I know Dan can't, be public about this but I want to know what the deal is so the, the concern I had was once Google and Facebook had to pay for news they'd make sure that they got something out of it so that they'd be using news a bit as you were saying lizzie for their purposes and I am still concerned that we don't know the terms of those agreements so I don't know if Can, you I, can, can I
2: respond that you to that can. in, yeah, in some way and sorry I, and
0: I don't regret backing in the code because I do want to see more journalists working at The Guardian and, and, and News and Fairfax for that matter because I also think that we need a strong media, but I am concerned that it's all happened behind the cloak of commercial incompetence.
2: So just on that last point, Peter, I'm glad you're still supportive, by the way. Um, Lizzie hasn't beaten you down, so uh, <laughs> there's still hope. Um, I'm,
0: like, but... I'm like the... <laughs>
2: <laughs> um... Blow in the wind. But, but look, I, look. as you said, I can't go into the specifics of the agreement because they are commercial confidence, and neither can any uh, of the media organisations that have done deals in Australia. Uh, at least that's my understanding. But I can say this, and I think it's an important point. The majority of the revenue that we are getting from Google and Facebook is for the licensing of our content. And let's not forget, yes, there is a, a public mm-hmm. interest journalism benefit from this, but really... One of the the things that gets lost a little bit in this debate is that Google and Facebook were getting a substantial benefit from our content that they were not paying for. And now they are, not to the extent that perhaps all of us would have liked and not in the way exactly the way that they would have liked, but certainly the vast majority of the deal that that we have done with them and I suspect other media organisations have done with them is licensing revenue, which doesn't come with strings attached. And so, look, these, these companies... Uh, as pointed out by Rod Sims in the digital platforms report uh, are so-called unavoidable trading partners for us. It doesn't make us any more dependent on Google or Facebook than we were before. We were already dependent on Google and Facebook. If you want to have a digital business, and you wanna be able to reach an audience, you cannot do anything but make your content available on Google and Facebook. I wish that were not the case, and we're all striving to to form direct relationships with our audiences. It's been a major focus of us for the whole time that I've been working in digital media, which is close to 20 years. But it doesn't change the dynamics of the fact that most people start their internet session with Google or Facebook, and therefore to not be there means that you're missing out on a huge amount of of, of audience and and benefit. So, it's It's right for the benefit that it goes for journalism, but it's also right just because Google and Facebook got a benefit that they should pay for and now they are
0: Harry I'll bring you in here now like, mm-hmm. what's your reflection on what's gone on here in the broader context of um the global conundrum of the decline of traditional
3: journalism and the rise of social media sure thanks thanks Peter I mean from a personal point of view i I experienced a change that went in the other direction that I was initially um, saying, well, nothing, nothing needed to be done. And disclosure, I uh contributed a consultant's report to Facebook along those lines and uh then changed my mind. And I think part of the changing my mind, being persuaded by uh the likes, likes of Peter and others, was the the growing growing realization that insofar as two things. One, insofar as green shoots were emerging in the online news space, they were really in danger of being killed by the platforms themselves and facebook's uh changes to its algorithm in 2018 had a massive massive impact on you know the buzz feeds of the world and 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 so forth and secondly just the whole question of who pays for news going forward is i think a really really serious one i'll just bracket off the public service media for one moment and focus on uh Commercial media that we we you know we're coming to a, a pivot point where a century long capacity to rely on the dual media markets is is now under substantial threat. I think you know the most telling parts of the A inquiry are those around digital advertising now being at least fifty percent of all advertising revenue and at least seventy percent of that going to Google and Facebook. So the idea that you can have news production taking place that can be reliably funded by advertising is coming to an end and that raises a question if you are to maintain news and of course news is a complicated bundle of things it's not it's not all the same product but someone's going to pay for that production we can go to subscription models and the new york times has for instance done that uh, very successfully but we have to be aware that um The New York Times' subscriber base is a very particular subset of the US population. Very few other mastheads have been able to follow the New York Times or Washington Post models. We can look to government uh, to cross-subsidise news, but I think that's, and, and there are a variety of schemes around that, but we know some of the questions that arise around the government putting money into, you know, one media outlet And not another. And in a sense, the government already funds the production of some news through the ABC and SBS. Uh, And then we have the question of whether uh, digital platforms should contribute to the costs of news production. And I think uh, Dan's point there is right that these were free goods from which uh, uh, very large corporate players were profiting from. And the question of whether some kind of a levying on that was was appropriate, was in a a sense the issue that won me over. I would just observe that I think there are different issues here between Google and Facebook, and there's also where other platforms in this is Twitter, there is LinkedIn and so forth. But I think there's a difference in the news space between uh, search and social, that uh, a social media world where news is a very minor part of it is entirely invisible, um, TikTok is not particularly a news space, for instance. But uh, the nature of search, it it is public infrastructure in the digital economy and it has to carry news. And I think uh, Google, I think in that respect, Google played a much longer game than Facebook on this, which I think is a sign of a company that has a quite different uh, corporate, corporate culture and preparedness to deal with governments, whereas Facebook has a history of threatening to uh, walk out of jurisdictions that introduce any regulation that impacts on its
1: I'd agree I'd agree with that Terry I think uh, Facebook is somewhat less mature than Google in terms of lobbying government and that's been Mm. um, that's been evidenced countless on countless occasions one thing I want to ask you though is like we've been talking about tax and transfer here as an alternative like I feel like there's some Depressing ideas about what's possible in this space in terms of taking on these behemoths, and one of the obvious ways I think you could have undercut some of the concerns that Peter has about lack of transparency is about just taxing these platforms and then putting that money into journalism in a variety of different ways. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Terry, you're at a university. Huge mm-hmm. amounts of university research is funded by government at an arm's length in an arm's length manner. I mean, there's problems with that as well, but. I have no understanding as to why journalism can't have a similar model of some description. And I just feel like there's a real absence of ambition here. There's always this assumption that because advertising has funded journalism since day dot, that that's, what's going to be the future as well. And that then this is a leaning into a data extractive business model that essentially we're going, we're not going to resist uh, data okay. extraction by platforms. That is part of their business model that we endorse. In fact, we're getting into bed with them now. I'm not saying Dan says that, but I, I do think that advocates of the code essentially were saying that. Why couldn't we have a system whereby we centralise uh, a revenue ta- uh, tax on revenue for digital platforms, like France has experimented with, put that into a um, source of funds that is then tapped into for various journalism projects? What's what's wrong with that? Why academics seem it seems to work out okay for academics, even when they're doing research that's critical of government. Mm. Couldn't the same be true of journalism?
3: Possibly. I, I mean you, you get to the pros and po- I I'm, I'm not sure the Australian Research Council is in a particularly robust state right at the minute, being being in the in the sector. And I think about, you know, a lot of debates come up with the um, the Australia Council as mechanism for funding. You can, you can up to up to a point, but I think perhaps the virtue of the uh the news media bargaining code in that respect is it makes it very clear who are the bargaining parties in this. Whereas I think and, I, and I'm not saying it precludes uh government schemes or or um different different ways of taxing uh digital platforms. I think all of those things are in the mix. You have
1: a big tax and transfer, Terry.
3: Yeah, but I mean as soon as as soon as you get into um government government funding, you get first of all the questions of well why why would you fund a a news outlet and not a new hospital and all, all those all those sorts sorts of um, perennial debates, and second secondly, and there is some evidence of this in Europe uh, when you get direct government funding of news providers, there are real risks of political interference all the way down the line uh, i
2: 'm a little bit on the fence to be honest about the the tax and sort of transfer option. I think it does have merit in some ways, but i just I'm just nervous about the idea of us taking funding from the government in any way. I think that journalism plays a role. As a, uh, you know, as a um, someone who's often attacking the government in a way that perhaps universities aren't, so I think it is it is potentially more problematic. Although I, you know, I haven't thought this through. Perhaps that's obvious. Can I just come back to your other point though on on advertising? Um, uh, I think that the way to, I think they're two separate issues. I think that just because we are asking for payment for the benefit or receive payment for the benefit that the platforms receive from our content and they are advertising businesses doesn't change the fact that we still need to have privacy reform and those are two distinct things and if we had privacy reform which did its job you could have both Google and Fa- and I hope we get to this point You have both Google and Facebook paying for the benefit they receive from our journalism which they are now doing um, and you can have privacy reform which significantly restricts the surveillance um, tactics if you like or strategy that underpins a lot of digital advertising both of those things are possible it's an, it's an and not an or so well, it can also involve
0: making that. them pay tax like just because they're paying a, a market accommodation for their monopoly power doesn't mean they shouldn't be paying tax either and the the broader mm. piece about them hiving off their profits through a license to a tax haven it just the glow like that's a global challenge that needs to be to be addressed sure. but it, they're, they're taking the piss out of the world really aren't they mmm Is that a technical?
2: (laughs) But but it's a fair, like it's a fair point. Like I I completely understand. By the way, Lizzie, your concern around Hmm. uh, around does does this deal potentially entrench some of these practices? I guess it does if we don't do anything else. But if we if we actually reform privacy, um, as well as some of the things that Pete's talking about, tax reform and everything else, then. Hopefully, we can we can all of these areas can improve. And yeah. this goes
0: back to the other problem with the bargaining code was that it was one of twenty three recommendations. Another which was digital literacy, another one which was privacy, another one which was dis- disinformation, another one that was ad tech. So, and Lizzie and everyone was rightly cynical that this was the one at the head of the queue, as if it was a cure all because it was the one that put money, not just in Guardian's pockets, but in Murdoch and Costello. So we are right to be cynical about this process. And until the rest of that inquiry and its recommendations are moved on, that cynicism will remain.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hilarious to be advocating for digital literacy education when, you know, Sky News is a source of disinformation, which is now mm. a key provider of supposedly quality news in this country. I mean, the other thing that I hate about this is that it is privatised in the sense that um, why has the um, government vacated the space in terms of being a provider of infrastructure of social engagement in online spaces? I mean, this is Pete's big hobby horse. I think he's putting up his hand for a reason. Mm-hmm. um oh, you know, the air conditioning on. Okay, he's turning the air conditioning on. Fine, not got any new ideas. But the point, of course, is that government should be investing in building infrastructure so that people don't have to be by default dependent on Facebook as a place to, you know, make friends with your neighbours in the street, um, to, you know, set up mutual aid societies in the course of a lockdown during a pandemic, to share news and local content that if you're in a regional or rural area, like the government should be investing in this. So there's multiple layers in which that big fund for journalism might work. It might also might subsidise cadetships and journalism, but it might also subsidise the infrastructure to be able to distribute quality content and also then ultimately facilitate what I would like to see online community building that isn't subject to corporate surveillance. And that's another form of governance that I think partly this code just kind of displaces all that discussion. It's like not even on the agenda. And I think there's potential problems with that. Um, Pete's thought about this a lot more than me, uh, but there's things that we have to be careful about. But I also think not not discussing that seems like, oh, we've given Scott Morrison a free kick. He just doesn't have to do anything about this, doesn't have to think about what society might look like in five years' time and start investing in the infrastructure necessary to get there. And that seems like a terrible shame to me.
3: I think one of the big issues around uh, the future of news that is not addressed by this code is the future of local and regional mm. news. and And really we've seen, you know, the news deserts, Phenomenon. We've seen a kind of implosion of non-national, non-metropolitan news news sites around around the country, and I think it um, it comes it comes back to bite. I mean that and the limits the limits of the sort of the subscription model in the US are very apparent. That you can build strong brand platforms on the East Coast and the West Coast of the US. But in the rest of the country, the the news system is collapsing. And sorry, I think I can give you some insight right. into why
2: this happens. Yeah. By the way, sorry to interrupt you, but just on this sure. one point, just yeah. for everyone's benefit. So, so the Guardian is is about sixty percent of our revenue now comes from our readers, so from from mm-hmm. voluntary contributions mostly. But um, I mean, you can you can put them in the same category as subscriptions in a way. Forty uh, percent from advertising. The problem with these regional masses is just the economy, uh, economics don't stack up. So, um, you know, even the most successful of us are only signing up about 2 to 3% of our audience to become a subscriber of our publications. And if you're only getting 2 to 3% of a town which has 50,000 people in it, you can't run a business. You just can't. It's, it's impossible to build something of substance. And the other problem is, is that because digital advertising has become so much about targeting... Uh, you can't really run an advertising business in those uh, markets either unless it's in the classified space, which, you know, some are having success mm. with. So it's really it's a, it's a really difficult problem and hard to solve. Um, I don't have the answers there, unfortunately. Probably That's a bit depressing. But that's that's the reality.
0: So I, I did pose the question in my Guardian piece, whether we sh- are eating chocolate mud cake or something else. Or <laughs> but um it does feel like it's been great to spend um, a bit of time just marking what was a global, Hmm. a global moment. Um, So I'm so glad that the guardian is a stronger company than it was. I am so disappointed that we don't quite know um, how that, Benefit has actually rolled out and I'm really looking forward to the 12-month review to see if we can find out anything more about it. But before we finish up, Lizzie, anything to announce for Digital Rights Watch members or fans over the coming weeks? Any? Yeah, I was
1: just going to say that every year Digital Rights Watch gathers together activists, writers and critical thinkers to reflect on the major digital rights initiatives or events that have occurred over the last 12 months and so we call that the State of Digital Rights Report we've got a date for its launch and its publication on the 3rd of March so it's the Thursday before the next one of these so if you're interested in coming along you don't know about it you can sign up to our email list and you can get an invite but you can register and it'd be great to see you there.
0: Excellent. We'll circulate that amongst our list. Thanks, Lizzie. Dan, um, just more more work at the grindstone at Guardian? Well, actually
2: I, I do have something which I'll, I'll, I can't say the whole thing yet because we haven't quite announced it, but I, I will make another point, which is relevant to this conversation. Actually, we are, in fact, about to substantially increase our local reporting um, in a few key areas. Uh, And we're doing that by the way, with the help of some of the funds that we received uh, from the platforms. So we're, we're going to areas that we couldn't, as I said before, just aren't economic on their own. But with the help of some of this funding, not just this, but with the help of some of it. Come on, can you
1: tell us what to, it is? What are you talking about? Come on. We're going to be doing <laughs> more local
2: reporting. That's about as much as I can say at this stage. But in about two weeks' time, or like perhaps next one, I'll be able to tell all of you about it. I'm sure it will make your day Lizzie.
1: Great.
0: <laughs> hey, and Terry, thanks a lot for um, being yeah. part of this. Terry's got, and we'll circulate it later. I think you've got a new paper out looking at some of this, and obviously um, oh, well. regular commentator on the issue. So We'll see you in a fortnight. Um, Thanks for being part of Burning Platforms today. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live in a virtual town hall. And if you'd like to attend one of these events, you can register at the Centre for Responsible Technology's website through the Australia Institute. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy talk again in a fortnight.